Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Andrea, what's the one moment you've witnessed in the courtroom in the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial that really epitomizes what this case is about? One is while E. Jean Carroll was testifying in this trial, which is really the issue in this trial is not what was she defamed that was already established in her first trial, not was she sexually assaulted that was already established in her first trial. It's how much money will Donald Trump have to pay her. Mm -hmm. So she's been testifying as to the effect of Donald Trump's words on her life. And she was talking about an email she has. It was her Ask E. Jean Carroll advice email. After Donald Trump called her a liar and said she's not my type and a con job and all the other things that he said, each time she said she would receive a flood of slime, including to this email account, Ask E. Jean. And instead of being, thank you, Eugene, I broke up with my boyfriend, I finally got the courage, or thank you, I got back together with my boyfriend, it was, you are a hag, you are ugly, you deserve to die, you deserve to be raped, emails of that ilk. And it really struck how much had changed in her life. That's Andrea Bernstein. She's been covering the Carol V. Trump cases for NPR, and she's also the host of the podcast We Don't Talk About Leonard and We'll Be Wild. We're also joined by Vanity Fair special correspondent Molly Jong-Fast. She's the host of the Fast Politics podcast. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to this podcast, Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair, where this week we're going inside the E. Jean Carroll cases against Donald Trump and looking at what those cases reveal about both plaintiff and defendant. Trump's war on institutions is on full display. This time, it's his war against the legal system. And there's a lot about these cases I didn't know until I talked with these guests. So let's get to it. Molly, you're friends with E. Jean Carroll. You've known her for years. What has it meant for her to bring these cases against Trump? You know, so many other women have accused Trump of assault, of intimidation, but this is a pretty rare case, and, and not just one, two different cases against Trump. So what's it been like for her to go through with this? 
I mean, we forget this because it was six years, you know, eight years ago, which is, you know, in the United States of amnesia, a hundred years ago. But like there were a number of women who came forward and said that they had been groped by him. So it was more just that there were, you know, a lot of this stuff was statute of limitation out. Right. He had yet again gotten away with it. So this when they changed the statutes, there was a chance to really go after him for something like this. And and I think like I think about this case as it, it really does show that women that it's so hard for women who get sexually abused or sexually violated or that it's so hard for them to find accountability, right? I mean, here's a woman, she's a writer, she's in media, she was married to a newscaster, she is, you know, wealthy and privileged and looks like a supermodel, and she couldn't get it, you know? So I do think it says so much about our culture and the domestic violence and how hard it is to be a woman in America, even in 2024, that I think that is kind of shocking to me. So, Andrea, you covered the first of these civil trials. You were in the courtroom most of the time. And it's important to recognize Trump in the courtroom is a big part of this story, for better or worse. Like it or not, he doesn't have to be there. Yeah, no, he doesn't have to be. This is now like the third trial against Trump or his company that I have attended. The first trial against the Trump Corporation, that was the one involving the illegal untaxed benefits that were paid systematically to employees. Uh, And Trump's company has been criminally convicted of that, of tax fraud. So we shouldn't forget that. He did not attend that. He did not attend the the first. By the way, I did forget that. This is what Molly means, which says (laughs) United States of amnesia. Yes. No, I know. Uh, Right. So so I was at that one when the jury came in with their 17 counts of guilty, 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 guilty. Uh, I was there for uh, Carol, too. And I have been in the business fraud trial in which a judge has already found that Trump has engaged in persistent and repeated business fraud. uh, And there are other causes of action still to be determined. But when that trial began, Trump showed up on the first day and I was like, okay, he's coming. He wants to, like, make his political point. But the testimony in that trial was so Dry. I cannot convey what it's like. I mean, reporters were sitting in the courtroom with binoculars to read the spreadsheets. The testimony would often go something like this. Let me direct your attention to cell number 1168 on sheet G. Is that your note? So, you know, we all know Donald Trump. Uh, Imagine him sitting through six hours of that. But he did it. And, you know, having covered Trump so long, written a book about the the Trump family, American oligarchs and their business. Like, I know he only does things if they are bringing him a lot of benefit. He is only sitting in this courtroom uh, where he has to stand when the bailiff says, all rise, part 37 is now in session, because he had that moment in the hallway in state court where he could go outside and beautifully set up his shot so he would be standing behind barricades, which were put there for his protection. Mm. But he used them to make it look like he was somehow being barred jailed, caged, forced to be there. Mm. And every time he went there, he said, I could be in Iowa, I could be in New Hampshire, but instead I'm here. And he kept coming and coming and coming. He came 10 times. And my only conclusion, and I think that the sort of, you know, Iowa results are bearing this out, was that it was a great political 
and possibly financial benefit to his campaigns for him to show up in the courtroom and present himself as this sort of aggrieved person hobbled by the criminal or and civil justice systems. So, right. But let me say, that business trial is complicated. Mm-hmm. And the defense that Trump has is, I mean, it's not, it's not a legal defense, but he has a defense in the court of public opinion, which is that the banks were happy, everybody made money, you know, they're just going after me. So it, the law, that is not what the law says. But in this trial, he has already been found to have, by the preponderance of the ed- evidence, to be liable for assault. Mm-hmm. And I am like, and the details, I mean, the details are graphic. You know, it's like he went into a dressing room and he threw her against the wall and he put his hand in her vagina and then he put his penis in. I mean, this is the once and possibly future president that we are talking about. And Mm. that is what we are talking about, an act like that. But can I interject here for a minute? Uh, I wonder if this is the same that if he's banking on this larger idea that intimidation works for him, right? Like he has managed to intimidate the entire Republican Party into letting him run for president again, right? He's managed to intimidate all of these Republican senators, right? They didn't convict him. But uh, I just wonder if he thinks that he can that he can intimidate the judges and the jury and the and the people who are testifying. I I mean, I think, you know, we'll know when we know in this case. It didn't, you know, the strategy last time was different. This, he didn't show up the last time. So I think it's hard to say. Um, but, you know, the, the judges and legal experts that I've spoken to don't think so. And, you know, this particular judge, Lewis Kaplan, in the federal case um, is not a particularly you know, soft-hearted judge. He is quite strict with everybody. And he's been very, very impatient, you know, with both legal teams, but mostly with Trump's lawyers. But the thing that I thought you were going to talk about, Molly, was the sort of way that intimidation works for him politically, which I think is absolutely true. Mm. And it is part of a, a pattern of he will, you know, berate people and attack people. And, you know, after the insurrection, there were members of Congress who told reporters that they were afraid for their families to vote for impeachment. So the, you know, sense of, you know, him being someone who there is a great, great, great cost to challenging, I think is what we are seeing very firmly established. I mean, Eugene Carroll has said, I was sexually assaulted by this man. I was defamed by this man. He's already been found uh, as the, you know, judge in this case said, it's been firmly established that he did those things. And yet he is unrepentant. I mean, what we're seeing is this situation, which, I mean, I've just never seen anything like it. After court, Trump is going down to 40 Wall Street, which is one of his properties, standing in the lobby before he gets on a plane to go back up to campaign. And he repeats, it's a hoax, it's rigged, it's a fraud. Etc. And then that becomes part of the evidence the next day in trial, what he said the day before. And I've just never seen anything like it. So, you know, he's he's actively actively defaming her. And all of the repeated statements, while not part of the compensatory damage case, can go to the question of 
What kind of punishment can you issue to Donald Trump so he will stop making these statements? That's a crucial question indeed. Much more with Andrea and Molly in just a minute. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. We're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Selter, speaking with Andrea Bernstein and Molly Jong-Fast. Molly, do you view this case and and view Trump's behavior as a preview of how he may engage in the criminal trials and in the indictments that are piled up against him? I think one of the things that Trump does, which ultimately hurts him but made him a very uh, effective political candidate, is that he sees what works and he keeps going with it. So he I think the message in his brain is that this uh, worked right because it did galvanize the base. Right. The people for whom he is the arbiter of reality, those people felt very aggrieved by Donald Trump's legal problems. And so I think that in his mind, he has felt that this is really this strategy has worked and I think he will continue with it now. The big question I have is if you are a mother in Arizona, does Donald Trump complaining about how he should have presidential immunity make you want to vote for him? Maybe it does. It seems to me to be completely not how any of this works, but maybe it does. There is one data point that suggests that Team Trump is aware that the Carroll cases. Uh, are a vulnerability for him. And that's what happened last Friday at an event in New Hampshire with NBC correspondent Vaughn Hilliard. He was pressing Elise Stefanik about the Carroll cases and about being Trump being found liable. And it was basically Elise Stefanik trying to be like, well, I, you know, I don't care what you know, the media is out to get him. And she's like, no, it's not the media. This was a jury that found him liable for assault. And then a couple of days later, uh, the Trump team booted Vaughn Hilliard from going with the uh, Trump plane, with the uh, Trump pool. He was representing the five major TV networks, and the Trump campaign said, no, you're not coming with us. Yes, I mean, there's so many things to say about this, but let's start with that. Because, you know, Molly was talking about how it's Trump has concluded it's effective with the base. Absolutely. But... People like Nikki Haley, who, you know, reframed it as well, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty. I mean, you know, she knows better because this is not a criminal trial. And then Elise Stefanik saying, you know, echoing Donald Trump's words. I mean, Elise Stefanik went to Harvard. She is smart. (laughs) She's not someone who should be confused about what that jury finding last May means. It has been established in a federal courthouse by a preponderance of the evidence that Donald Trump did these things. And it's not a question of, yeah, I'm going to choose to believe it. I'm not going to choose to believe it. Like this is a place in our society that is still a finder of fact. Yeah. And every time Trump is rejecting all of this, he is eroding that belief. 
So mm. what is happening by his constant repetition of this is a Trump-hating judge, this is a partisan, the whole thing was, you know, cooked up at Molly Jong Fass house, mm. you know, by my political enemies, um, which he hasn't quite said that, but, you know, close to it, that this whole thing, time. you know, yeah. the implication was there, was that this is um, not a place where we can determine truth. And that, I think, is really, really troubling because the courts have been a break on Trump, as we know. There were 60 some odd cases the last time about the election, and he did not win in any courts, including with judges mm-hmm. that he'd gotten appointed. So we are witnessing in real time a phenomenon of Trump really eroding faith in the criminal justice system. And that, I think, is one of the potential really difficult and dangerous outcomes of the constant undermining of the rule of law. I will suggest there's one silver lining. Tell me if this is crazy, Molly. I'm learning a lot about how the court system functions. (laughs) Like when the Trump lawyer, Alina Haba, was up there in court uh, the other day making a fool of herself, there's this uh, fantastic Twitter thread describing how she didn't seem to know that the basics of court procedure, I found myself uh, learning uh, how the the system is supposed to work. Um, Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, for all the folks that are going to be turned off, maybe some are going to actually be educated. I don't know. I'm just, I'm stretching here. I'm stretching for a positive part of this. (laughs) I mean, I think, look, Trump has undermined democracy, right? His supporters believed that Joe Biden didn't win the 2020 election. So it's hard for me to imagine that they won't ultimately feel the same way about the court system. And that is pretty scary. Right. But what else are we going to do? That, There's I think no is choices. The thing, right? yeah. It's sort of like what, you know, the institutions where, you know, that are grounded in truth and facts and research are all under assault. And, you know, it's not obviously from Donald Trump. It's from a whole movement. But, you know, by having Trump involved in these court cases, I think we see, uh, you know, how he is using it to his advantage when it could be to his great disadvantage. It could be really harmful to have these things determined about him and these settlements and judgments made against him. But, I, you know, I hate polls, but there are a lot of polls that show that if he is convicted, he loses whatever little bit is not, you know, full MAGA. Well, I, I mean, I read those polls, you know, along with everybody. I just don't know what they mean right. yet. I think it's just very hard to determine. And I think obviously what Trump is doing is trying to you know, play the ref for the next call. He's trying to mm-hmm. to make it, you know, an argument that everybody's against him and the system is out to get him. So people will be suspicious of any judgments, uh, you know, that are brought against him. And, you know, he seizes on things. I mean, in the in the business fraud case, he made a great deal of the fact that he didn't have a jury in that case. Well, you know, a Manhattan jury already convicted his company of fraud. So, you know, Mm -hmm. and found him liable for defamation and sexual assault. So I don't know that a jury is so great, but but people are left with that nugget. Oh, we didn't get a jury. So it wasn't really fair. It's just some judge. And I think his clerk has supported Democrats and there's something, you know, wrong with it. Mm -hmm. So, however, I just want to say really, really clearly that I don't think that there's a choice. I mean, I think, you know, we have to 
you know, use as a society the tools that we have to illuminate the truth. One of those big tools is journalism, even though, you know, the whole field of journalism has been discredited. It's not like we should stop. And I don't think the court system should stop either trying to sort of parse what is truth and what is false. Let me squeeze in a quick break here and then ask about Trump's legal team and how they've been behaving in the courtroom. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. We are back on Inside the Hive, talking with Andrea Bernstein, who's been in the courtroom for the E. Jean Carroll defamation case against Donald Trump. We're also joined by E. Jean Carroll's friend, Molly Jong-Fast. You know, every time I'm watching MSNBC or CNN and I hear about this case, and, and Andrea, you're living it, you're in the courtroom. Every time I hear about this case, it's something that Trump did wrong. You know, it's some Trump lawyer who's being admonished by the judge, you know, acting out of line, Trump being heard, but he's not supposed to be heard by the jury. How bad has it been, actually, Andrea, in the, in the courtroom? And, uh, you know, is it is it a strategy on Trump's part? So it's unclear if it's a strategy. I mean, his lawyer has certainly said things in front of the jury that E. Jean Carroll's team have protested. So is it a strategy to, you know, get certain things before them that otherwise wouldn't be allowed in? And then once, you know, the bell has been rung, can't be unrung. It's hard to judge. I mean, I just think it all comes down to the fact Trump has already been found to have defamed E. Jean Carroll. The question is, how much money will he have to pay her? And what is Trump's post-verdict strategy for this case? And it's hard for me to know how to untangle all of that in real time. Right. Molly, have you talked with Eugene about uh, this latest case? Do you have a sense of what she's feeling or going through? No, but I texted with her. And I mean, I think, look, you know, Eugene is 80 years old. She's very spry and she looks, incre- I mean, for 80, I want to look like that when I'm 80. And she's incredibly uh, sharp and meticulous. Um, but, you know, I, I maybe because I just came through this year where I had all these family members die. Mm. It is really, you know, we are not on this earth forever. And if I were 80, I'm not sure that spending hours a day fighting with Donald Trump would be, you know, how I would want to start what very well could be my last decade on this planet. Right. So, you know, I think she has a mission and I think that she feels, again, she has not told me this, but from what I know about her life and the kind of feminist she is, I think she feels like she's doing kind of the work that has to be done and nobody else can do it. And so I think that's profound. But if it were me, you know, I I might want to just be in Florida. (laughs) It really has highlighted the human toll. What happens when you're on the receiving end of a torrent of what she calls slime of hate and and death threats and all of that? Um, And is there any recourse? And I think oftentimes I come from a place of there's not really a recourse. 
You know, your face is plastered on Fox News. You're going to get bashed. You're going to get shit all over. Nothing you can do about it. She has shown a path for taking recourse when it's a very specific situation involving, in this case, a former president. Brian, let me just actually jump in on this question because, you know, there's been testimony that's come up on this question of the personal toll and on how she feels about having brought the case. Right. What's interesting to me is this ambivalence really comes through because there is, you know, so much grief for the life she had before she came Mm -hmm. forward for, you know, when she was untroubled uh, by Donald Trump. She also testifies to the fact that, you know, people have given her a lot of support, you know, for for coming forward. And, you know, one of the defenses as well, look, she's, you know, gotten so much celebrity and fame and, and support that this has actually helped her. But what's interesting to me is she's expressing from the stand all of these emotions. Like, I'm proud of myself that I did this, that I, you know, got up and, you know, both for my, you know, sort of personal truth and the truth of women made this fight, but also the toll that it has taken and how much loss she feels. Yeah, wasn't there an exchange about how much she has to pay for security and whether she has the funds to have security, to have bodyguards? Yeah, I mean, this was sort of poignant because, you know, she was asked why she didn't have security all the time and she said, I can't afford it. I mean, one of the sort of side themes of the trial is, you know, she was sort of testifying about what life for her was like in the 1990s. And one of the pieces of evidence was a article she'd been assigned to write for Outside Magazine, going camping with Fran Lebowitz. And, you know, made me pine for the days of when magazine writers would be assigned to do that. Uh, So, you know, there was once a time of, you know, and she had a daily television show. I mean, she was, you know, really had a career of great success. But how, you know, coming forward and, you know, one of the very specific things she's saying is that, you know, she lost her column after Donald Trump attacked her, you know, television opportunities dried up unless she was going to talk about Donald Trump. Mm. You know, she could no longer go on and say, here's how to get your boyfriend back or, you know, here's how to deal with your obnoxious boss or, you know, whatever else she would be uh, advising people about that that is over for her. So all of that has really come out in the case. And you know, the fact that she has suffered financially has also come through. And I, and I think particularly so in this trial, more than in the last one. So we will see how this trial concludes, the second of the Carol cases. But Molly, what do you, what do you think Carol wants the legacy? What do you think she wants the legacy of this to be? You know, I, I mean, I, I don't know what she wants the legacy to be. I mean, Rick Wilson said it when he said everything Trump touches dies. Like we're all sort of tarnished. I mean, this continuous Trumpist attack on everything we hold dear. So, you know, I think, I I mean, I think about how much she would probably just like to go back. The one thing I wanted to say just to get it into the podcast record is that he did say he had never met her. And there is a picture, a photograph of him with her. I just think that's so important. Right. He said it didn't count because it was just another person on a, you know, rope line or whatever party line. But But it was they were sitting, they were standing there talking. It wasn't like a rope line picture. It was like four people talking together. I mean, I think that, you know, in the 1990s, when the events of this trial took place, I was working at the New York Observer and there was a sort of world of New York celebrities 
in which everybody was pretty much aware of everybody else. So, you know, it would be such an outlier for Donald Trump not to know Eugene Carroll. But yes, absolutely. There was a photograph. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We don't need to debate this because a jury of Donald Trump's peers has already found by preponderance of the evidence that he sexually assaulted Eugene Carroll. But let me say one thing about the, uh, you know, sort of that picture is that in the first trial, there was a deposition and... Robbie Kaplan is deposing Trump and he says, who is that? And he says, it's Marla. That's Marla. Marla Maples, his second wife. So in her summations, Kaplan said it wasn't that she wasn't his type. She was exactly his type. He mistaked her for his second wife. So it's sort of like on multiple, multiple levels, that photograph is uh, is problematic. I feel all of a sudden like I'm back in the Trump presidential years mm. where the lies and the the visual evidence debunking the lies and the right. <laughs> the denials and the backflips and the contradictions all just come rushing back. Andrea, thank goodness that you're you're able to do this for us every day and you're in the courtroom mm. so we don't have to be. I mean, in the business trial in the his decision finding that Trump had committed persistent and repeated fraud in the summary judgment decision, uh, Justice Ngoran quoted Chico Marx, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? And that is the daily exercise of being, you know, oh. with Donald Trump. Andrea, thank you so much for breaking it down for us. Molly, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. It's uh, really great to talk to both of you. Yeah, it's great to meet you, Andrea. <laughs> And thanks for joining us. This week's episode of Inside the Hive was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our engineer was Gabe Caroga. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. I hope you'll look me up on Twitter or threads, at uh, Brian Stelter. Let me know what you want to hear on future episodes of the podcast. You can also email me anytime at bstelter at gmail.com. And we'll be back in your podcast feed next week. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.